at New York Insight, we are particularly concerned about um, community and developing a way that we can at least model that here in this room. A way that we not only recognize our interconnection, our interdependence, but that we actually behave as if we are interdependent and interconnected. And so what, one, one of the things that we recognized, especially those of us who come from a retreat kind of um, culture, where you know the silence was so precious that uh, we understood how fragile it was and, and how much it supported our um, our deepening, our depth of practice. And so we'd come back home and we'd want to hold on to it, you know, because it was so beautiful and so helpful. And so in the beginning, you know, we would, in, in our community centers, um, when we founded them, we founded them almost like as part of a retreat culture. And then we realized it wasn't working. Right, because here we are in messy New York City, right? We're in the midst of all of this busyness and people and people bumping up against us and us bumping up against people. And so we recognize that there had to be a different way that we work, that our retreat practice is really a support for how we are when we come back and we are in the midst of our lives. But that being in the midst of our lives really requires us to work really diligently to understand how to be together. And that if we could model that in this small room, that it might be a beautiful model for how we are in the world, how everybody is together in the world. So one of the things that we do, it's a very simple act, which is to say hello to each other, just so that when somebody steps on your cushion, you don't kind of go, grrr, right? But rather you think, oh, it's just Joe, right? Um, it's okay, Joe stepped on my cushion, it's not a problem. So one of the, way, one of the things that we ask you to do is to just say hello and, and introduce yourself. Maybe just say where you're from. And without giving you instructions, I would just like to invite you, as you begin to sit, to remember your intention for sitting, whatever it is, to allow it to arise and reflect for a moment so that your sitting, your practice is not without grounding, just to remember the intention.
on these Tuesday evenings, um, uh, we create the Dharma talk together uh, by the questions you ask and the conversation and the inquiry that we have together. So no question is um, too simple or too basic. Um, please don't judge your question and decide whether it's worthy. If you have a sincere question, it's very, very welcome. So, hi. I've uh, read and heard about better? Yeah. insight meditation and concentration meditation, and I've read in some of the some of the books from here that there is no difference. That this is a false distinction. Uh, perhaps you could explain. It, it, are they the same? Are they different? Is it a different? Mm. emphasis on a different syllable or what are we yeah. talking about yeah so words are really hard right much of the time especially with the dharma we're trying to communicate something that's ineffable this is not particularly ineffable but words are not precise in terms of the thing itself that we're trying to describe it, it's by necessity conceptual and so we get into all kinds of trouble because we really want things to be so precise, right? So that we can understand them. So when you hear that insight meditation and concentration are um, really are one thing, in one way it's true in the sense that they are two aspects of the practice. So there's concentration practice in which the, the mind is invited to, um, to take up an object, take one object, and to have the, the attention fill itself with that one object. And usually, for most of us, that object, at least when we begin, is the breath, right? And so we're directed to find a place in the body where the breath is easily detected and to place the attention on that one object. Now, how many people here have had a 45-minute meditation in which the attention has stuck? to the breath. Come on. Let's see. Not a one. So in a way, it's like a trick, right? Because what we then notice is the activity of the mind, which I've my most the most amusing description I've ever seen of it is it's a drunken monk it's like a drunken monkey stung by a scorpion. Right? And it's, that's in a lot of the texts. So what we notice is that the mind is jumping, right? And I've had a lot of opportunity this week with a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old to watch that phenomenon, right? That it's like, it's just from one thing to the next. And, and a lot of the time, the connection isn't even logical, right? But if we watch our minds, we begin to see that that's what happens. So, but we're, we're, we're told, be on the breath. And then, because we notice that it doesn't stay on the breath, we're then instructed that as soon as we notice that it's not on the breath, to return to the breath. And of course, you know, different, there's a lot of different schools of, of uh, instruction, a lot of different schools of meditation. Um, you know, some people will, ask you to watch the breath at the top of the, at the bottom of the nostrils and the top of the lip. Some will say at the chest, some will say at the belly. There have been internecine wars about, you know, where we should watch the breath. But for me, it's, it's really the, the principle of keeping the attention on one object. And what we do notice is if we're willing to begin again, over and over and over and over again, every time the, the attention moves from the breath, to know, and we notice it, to come back, we come back, we come back. And then over time, 
what starts to happen is the, the, the mind does start to settle down. How many people have noticed that? I can get some hands now, right? Yeah, sure. So we, we noticed that after practicing in this way for a while, that the, the, uh, the mind starts to settle down and the periods of the mind being away at the past or the future get shorter and the moments when we're watching the breath, watching is, again is an imprecise word, but being with the breath, get longer. So what happens when the, the mind actually presents something? So we're minding our own business, we're watching the breath, and then the mind presents an object. Right? It presents a thought or an emotion or a physical sensation or a sound or something that's presented to one of the six senses that's including the mind that has absolutely nothing to do with the breath. And we can't get back to the breath, but you know, like somebody said something to us at work today and we're so angry that we're turning blue with wanting to go back to work and tell them off, right? And that's what we're on. Or um, we're excited because we had some good news and the mind is just filled with this good news. Or, any th or, or just random thoughts that you just can't stop. It's the, the mind just seems to want to wander in this particular sitting. Well, there's a, th what begins to happen is we begin to learn how to intentionally remove the attention from the breath and bring it to whatever is occurring, whatever is happening now. That's one thing. Or when the mind is really concentrated, it re it's hardly moving off of the breath. We let go of the breath and we open our attention to a much wider um, uh, object. And that wider object is what is happening moment to moment to moment, and it's called kanika. Um, moment to moment to moment, we're watching what's actually happening in the mind. Well, if the mind is really concentrated, when we start to do that, we notice three things. The first thing we notice is that things are happening without our say-so and without our control. That's the first insight. We notice, secondly, that the changes in, from moment to moment to moment are so rapid, we can barely sit still. That everything in the universe is change. But we can't see it without a concentrated mind. It's I, I don't think, I, I don't know anyone who's seen that without the mind being somewhat concentrated. And, and when I say change, I don't mean, oh yes, over seven years our bodies change. Or I mean in this moment things are changing. It's changing. And the, this snapping of the finger is about a hundred times, a thousand, a million times too slow for the rate of change in the universe. So we see that. And we also begin to notice the, uh, the stress of that. A, that we don't have control. B, it's changing all the time. And C, it's completely stressful that this is the situation we find ourselves in. So together, the mind that is concentrated as the basis of our practice and the and these insights are not intellectual. I want you to know that. It's, you can't think your way into them. You actually see these, these, three phenomen these three characteristics of phenomena because the mind has gotten so still that it knows it. And it knows it physically. It knows it emotionally. It knows it psychically. 
and maybe later on it kind of puts it together intellectually, but there's a visceral understanding that comes from this concentrated mind being with the changing nature of life from moment to moment. So that's what's meant that concentration and quote mindfulness, which is really moment to moment awareness or moment to moment observation are really not separate, but the techniques are separate. The, the uh, single-pointed concentration is a different technique than the concentration that arises from, uh, from um, observing moment to moment what is happening. And this, obser this observation, the Buddha taught, we can do in four different ways. And the first way is by noticing what's happening in the body. The sensations, the heat, the cold, the pressure, um, the, the flow, the um, fluidity, uh, the solidity, all of that, it, and all of the sensations that come and go, and all of the, the five physical senses, what happens hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. And that we can, we can, so we can be mindful of that. We can be mindful of our feelings. We can be mindful of when things are pleasant and what, how the organism reacts or responds to that pleasant feeling and how it responds to unpleasant and how it responds to neutral. And then there's a third way that we can observe, which is what happens in the mind and the heart, the, the, the thoughts and the emotions, and what kind of mind is, is the basis of that. Is the mind wide or is it narrow? Is it concentrated or is it unconcentrated, etc.? And then the fourth way is, is really to observe all of life as a lawful unfolding. And he has different ways of teaching, whether it's the Four Noble Truths or the Five Aggregates or the Six Sense Bases or the Seven Factors of Awakening. All of these different teachings are pointing to ways of observing life with an understanding from this quiet mind that is equanimous and silent. Because when we observe from a silent and equanimous mind, we see the truth. Because it's not overlaid with our perceptions and our opinions and our views, but we're actually seeing directly uh, what is true. So, so it's of a piece, this meditation practice, and when you read that concentration and insight are not two different things, that's what it means. But they are different ways of practicing. Is that? You're welcome. So my question is more of a, of a how-to. Um, so when, when you're setting your intention for the, for the sitting, um, how do you go from there to just um, following the breath and not focusing on the intention. On the intention. Yeah. So, so did my instruction kind of um, derail you? No, no, not at all. I, I, I always have that problem where I sit with myself, I have a particular intention, and then I keep going back to it. I keep thinking about it. I try to follow the breath and you know, just focus on that, and then all so, of a sudden, so you, it pops you feel, into my mind. So you feel as if you have two things going on. Yes. So, yes. so the practice itself, and the intention, and you have an intention. So, would you mind dis disclosing your intention? Uh -oh. No, no, not at all. I mean, for this time, I said to myself that I'm my intention is to be more open mm -hmm. and um, uh, less uh, less judgmental. Less judgmental. And more open. More open. And then, but I kept thinking about it every time I tried to focus on the breath. So when you think about it, what do you do? Um, 
Well, I said to myself, I'm being judgmental. You did what? <laughs> I said to myself that I'm being judgmental. You say to yourself that you're being judgmental. Yes. Why are you being judgmental by thinking about your intention? Because I, I think it's, it seems to me that it's disturbing my, my, ah, my you think it's disturbing. Yes. This is a really good point. So, do you really think that what's coming up in your experience is a disturbance when you're meditating? Yeah. Because, you do. Yeah, because I, I think that I'm okay. To okay. So this ties back to, to your question, right? So, what is meditation? Um, sitting quietly and being aware of the breath and your thoughts and emotions and. Thank you. So, what does it mean to be aware of your thoughts? They come up and you, I guess, acknowledge them. Yeah. So, so far so good. <laughs> but then they keep coming up again. So, and what's the problem with that? <laughs> it's disturbing. It's disturbing. Yeah. And what's the problem with that? <laughs> I don't know. Sorry? It's an infinite regression. Yeah, that's true. So, what would happen? What would happen if instead of thinking that this is a disturbance, you would just see it as this is what is arising now? Thinking. What happens? Have you, when you acknowledge your thought, what happens to it? Um, it goes away. Yeah! But then it comes back again. Oh! <laughs> so, so, so in some ways, what you're implying is that good, good meditation is when the thought only comes up once and doesn't come back again. Anybody had that experience? You've had that experience of the thought coming up once and not coming back again? It's disturbing to... Okay, so they did a study. I don't know how they did it. It's probably Harvard who did it again, right? Because they're always doing studies. That, and they said that they, they looked at how many thoughts we have during the day. And they said it was somewhere around 95,000. And that's not so interesting. What's really interesting is they said, and only 5% of them are new. It's, now that's disturbing, you said. Why is that disturbing? It's only disturbing if we have some opinion or some idea about the way things should be. And, you know, I had, this, I had a teacher, a wonderful woman named Betty Keen, who we, I interviewed for, we were going to write a book together, and I interviewed her. And she, she was part of the Charlotte Selva School of Sensing. And she was a wonderfully wise woman. She was about 89 when she died. She, and I was interviewing her when she was like 86 or 87. And she said, you know, we all think that there is this idea out there of perfection. And we're not it. Right? But have you ever met anyone that you could actually use the word perfect for? And what's really amazing is that we as human beings think that we have some idea of what perfect experience would be like. Like a, a mind that never had a repetitive thought. Right? Or a mind that when you sat, when you sat down to meditate and you said, watch the breath, it just stuck to that damn breath and it never moved, right? What's beautiful about the, if the Buddha was teaching that, we wouldn't all be in this room, right? We'd have long gone, Sufi dancing or something, right? Because that's not what he was teaching. What he was teaching was, A, that the, was that the mind is completely wild and untrained. 
that's the bad news. And that the good news is that it actually can be tamed. But he didn't say when it's tamed, it looks like this. What, he, what we understand from our practice is that a tamed mind is one that actually sees very clearly its own arisings and understands the process of the arising and passing away of all phenomena, including our thoughts, our breath, our minds are coming and going, everything is go coming and going. We all think that we're all these permanent entities sitting in this room, but as we sit here, we're all flowing. Not one of us is frozen. Not one of us is frozen. We are all in flow. And yet, somehow, we seem to think that stopping the river would make a perfect river. That this river of experience somehow should be still. Just imagine this room filled with people who are just still. So peace, this is a really important point of practice. Peace is not about an empty mind. It isn't about an empty mind. It's about a trained mind that is actually able to stay in the present moment, whatever is happening. It stays in the present moment. It's not lost in the past. It's not lost in the future. It's here, and it's seeing exactly what its experience is. And when it's able to do that, it's able to respond appropriately to the circumstances of the life. If we're, if we're caught up in judging whether this thought happened 50,000 times before and so this 50,000 and first is really annoying, then we're not really understanding this thought that's arising. And we're not seeing its nature. What is the nature of thought? It's ephemeral, it's ineffable. You try to grasp it and it just goes away. But if we're, if we're judging it, if we're thinking it's annoying, if we're thinking it shouldn't be happening, if we're thinking we're wrong and our meditation's bad and all of that, we're not noticing, oh, this thought came, it went. It came, it went. It came, it went. It came, oh my God, what's that about? What's that about? And just think, this very thought that's coming and going, is coming and going, coming and going, has been ruling me for 50 years. Wow, now that's an insight. And is that, the, is that the thought that you want to rule your life? But if you're busy saying it shouldn't be coming up, then you're not examining it. You're not seeing it, you're not understanding it, you're not understanding its nature that this idea of something ruling the mind is a little bit amazing given how ephemeral it is, right? You said when you acknowledge a thought, it disappears. This is a big hint, right? So we acknowledge a thought and it disappears. Wow, what's that about? So can we let go and we're not talking about not discerning. We're talking about judging. Judgment and discernment are two different things. Discernment has to do with intelligent response. Judging is when we're in this state of shoulds and shouldn'ts and goods and bads. We're in a dualistic state and we've lost the vast middle. So the Buddha pointed us back to this vast middle in which he said, understand what's true, rather than jumping to conclusions about it or judging it constantly. So if the mind is producing the, a repetitive thought, maybe one of the things that you can say to, it, to this repetitive thought is, okay with me, you want to come back for the rest of my life? Hey, knock yourself out and see what happens. But if you're in the tightness and the resistance of it, I can guarantee it's going to keep coming back.
Does that help? Yeah, that is. That's, that helps a lot, actually. Yeah, it, and it's a really important, it, it's a very um, slippery point in meditation, which is why I like to point people to intention. So the intention is not to make the mind empty. The intention is to make the mind still. Now, stillness is deep. So you can have uh, a disturbed surface of any body of water, but if you actually go down into the depths of that water, it's still. So can you make your mind like a still pool? Even though on the surface of it, there may be all the wind may be whipping it up, there's still a stillness below. That's what we're training ourselves to do. And then when, when that's true, the mind sees the truth, not the um, conditioned reactions to what is true, which, which blurs the truth. This, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine distinction, but it's a very important one. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, my name's Wendy. Um, I have a question about generosity. So, um, I know you mentioned earlier that we should all try to practice generosity, but in these days, like when you meet someone or encounter someone who, there's a lot of people just kind of take it for granted. Take your generosity for, for granted. For granted and like just take advantage of like your generosity and kindness. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of people probably have run into that type of experience. I'm so sorry, a lot of people have had that experience? Probably have, have this type, you know, encounters where you're trying to be nice with someone and that person just take it for granted or think, you know, you're kind of naive or stupid. So in this case... And like, that's what? They probably just think you're like, you know, very naive and stupid. Ah, you're worried about being taken advantage of. Yeah, but when, you, when something like this happens, I don't know, if in my past experiences, I feel I just want to get away from these people because I, it, I feel like they t kind of take away my positive energy. I don't know, like I don't want to be continuously generous with them. I don't want to deal with them. I don't know, and I don't even want, it's like, how should I deal with situations like these? to not so make myself can I, can affected. Can I ask you a couple of questions about sure. that? Sure. Okay. So what's the definition of generosity? Mm, I think it's when you see someone like you can help out or they ask you for help, you can offer it. Or even when they are not asking, but you can do it, like you just make an offer uh -huh. with a good intention. So... So, so you're looking at generosity as always something that has to do with the person that is the recipient of your generosity. Yeah. So you're looking at their quality of heart in yes. receiving. Yes. I usually do that, I think. Maybe. Okay. So, th so that's an interesting inquiry for you. And I'm not, because I'm not going to answer your question. Uh -huh. Because... It's a, it's a really interesting thing that giving, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. is from here to there. It's not from there to here. So, so the question is, what is it about that that makes you so afraid or anxious or concerned that you'll be taken advantage of rather than uh, being with the, um, that feeling of seeing need and responding. Just feeling the heart open to want to help. And what, what happens in that moment because I'm sure that that instinct, we, we all have it. There's n none of us is without that instinct. And, and yet there is this moment when instead of being full with that instinct, there suddenly comes 
the thought, what if I'm being a fool? What if I'm being taken advantage of? Are they grateful enough? Shouldn't they be doing this or should they be doing that? So all of those questions, can you actually begin to um, fall in love with your own generous heart? And, and I'm not advocating that you just like, you know, just give it away, give it away. Although, you know, Mother Teresa, when she was asked about um, how she did what she did, and how she gets her nuns to do, the, got her nuns to do the same thing. She said she would call her nuns together and just say, give it away, give it away, give it away. That was her only instruction, right? And so what, and then another inquiry might be, what happens if I don't help? For, because of the fear that I might be taken advantage of or what ha what's happened in the past that makes me believe that it will I'll be taken advantage of. So there's so many ways that you can just notice your own reactions and really make an intention, like for a week. I'm going to give, every time that impulse arises, I'm gonna give and see what happens without any thought about what the other person's doing or what their intention is or what, you know, or whether they're grateful enough. And so that you can direct your attention back to your own feeling of generosity, which is joy. If you, if you're, because if you're not in fear about being taken advantage of, Generosity is an incredibly joyous state of mind and heart. So do you want to rob yourself of that? What do you think? Do you think that, what do you think is the, is the um, should be the, the end result of generosity? If it's, a, if it's a recoiling and a fear, then you've robbed yourself of all of the joy of it, right? And just notice what the mind that is questioning somebody else's motives, what that feels like. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying notice what it feels like. And notice what it feels like when you actually give without the thought of, you know, what are they, what are they trying to put over on me? So that Again, it's not, a, it's not an imbalanced thing where you just kind of lie down and say, take advantage of me, I don't care, whatever you want. You know, that's, that's not it, it's, it's, a, it's measured. And yet there is also a place for a completely open heart that in some ways is innocent. That's where the joy comes from, right? And see if you can actually experience joy when you give and acknowledge the voice that says, oh, you're probably being a fool. Acknowledge it and say, and, and, but acknowledge it with great compassion so that you're not, you know, saying it's bad or it's wrong or it's nasty or it shouldn't be that way. But acknowledge it because there's, because there's you know, there's some wisdom in that voice. But if it becomes extreme, then it loses its wisdom. Thank you. You're welcome, you. Wendy. Someone in the back. Do you know whose voice that is? That's saying you're probably being taken advantage of? It, if we start to pay attention to these voices, they're not so stressful. Because sometimes they just are asking for attention and love kindness. But the question is, how do you want to live? Do you want to live on that side that's constantly questioning other people's motives? Or, and, and again, we don't want to fall into a dualistic place where it's either this way or that way. There's a huge middle 
in which people's intentions, are, all of our intentions are mostly mixed intentions, right? So, but the question is, how do you want to live? We don't want to fall into a dualistic place, right? So even when we talk about equanimity, equanimity means balance, right? So there's a balance. He was saying, what about, you know, that the, the, with equanimity, it means that we understand that everybody has their own karma. And that even, you know, the drug addict who's, you know, taking advantage of you, that, that it's his karma, right? But equanimity doesn't mean that we're stupid or we're foolish or we're not wise or that people's or that we see things as over here, you know, it's either positive or negative. There's a whole vast middle in which we hear ourselves, we hear our instincts, we hear our intuition, we hear our wisdom, we hear all of the, all of the uh, qualities that we have that are available to us. So if there's somebody in the street who's begging and he, he or she says, you know, my, my child needs food, right? And you think, something's not quite right with this person. You don't have to give. But it, it, it doesn't mean that you're not a generous person. It means that in this moment, there was a feeling that that's not where you wanted to put your resources. That doesn't mean you're mean. On the other hand, the person says, my child needs food, and your first thought is, oh my God, I've got to help this child. Now, this person may have no children, <laughs> right? But your instinct of wanting to help this child, there's a great story about Roberto Vincenzo, who was a golfer, who won a huge prize. He won a golf tournament and got a check. And this woman came up to him and gave him this huge sob story about his, her child. Said her child was sick and needed an operation and blah, blah, blah. And Vincenzo signed the check and handed it to her. And people said to him, this person is like, this is a con woman, right? She has absolute, she doesn't have a child, let alone a sick child. What is wrong with you? Why did you do this? And he said, what? There's no child? Oh, what a relief. <laughs> Enough said. This is a phenomena going on in my life that is very annoying. And I hope I'm not the only one that feels this way about phenomena in their lives that are, that are annoying. And what I'm trying to do with great effort is to make this annoying phenomena an object of meditation. <laughs> and I'm having a very difficult time doing that. Um, and I wanted to know if you had any advice about that. Um, Why do you want to make it an object of meditation? Well, it's, that's a good question. I guess I, I, <laughs> I don't have, I can't stop it. Um, and it's occurring at a time when I'm really, I don't have the energy to do anything else. Um, basically, it's, Noisy neighbors upstairs. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So, and it's uh, interfering with my sleep and so on. And it's really. Nothing. Have you considered moving? Oh, uh, well. Okay, all of these other things that that are possible, like moving my bed to the other room. All these things are certainly on the mind. But at the moment, this is where I'm at, and so. I was wondering if you had any so advice. When you, so when you make it the object of your meditation, how do you do that? Well, that's, that's, that's what I, I guess I need advice about. That's what you need because, because I find myself, um, I guess I, I resent it, right? Uh, there are these feelings that come up. Um, and I guess I, I don't know how to... I don't know how to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I guess the answer is I don't know. 
Mm. Uh, you know, I medit I do meditate. And so, I, so it reminds me of a story about Ram Das going to his teacher because he was in India and he, um, he, he found this apartment that was a great apartment, but he f didn't realize that it was next to a firehouse. That's exactly what happened. And so me. he'd start, you know, <laughs> meditating and... And he went to his teacher and he said, well, how do I meditate on the fire engines? And the teacher said, move. <laughs> right? So, you know, so the, again, it's, it's not one extreme or another, but if you, if you feel as if you're unable to remedy the situation either by speaking to your neighbors or getting some kind of relief, external relief. Um, you, first of all, you may want to meditate in a different room. Uh, second, if, you know, if the apartment's big enough. But you, you actually can hear sound. I, I, the other story it reminds me of is um, Ajahn Chah, when he went to London. Ajahn Chah is my teacher's teacher. He was a northeastern Thai monk. When he went to, um, to London, uh, the, they had this little place where they would meet and to, to sit. And uh, not unlike our listening to the uh, aerobics music sometimes from here. And, you know, so this noise, all this noise would be happening because London's a city. And people asked Ajahn Chah the same question. And he said, why are you going out to disturb the noise? The noise is there. It's just noise. You're, you're going out to disturb the noise. The noise is not coming in here to disturb you. So, and that was helpful to me when I heard that story with, with sound. And I, when I hear sound now, even if it's piercing sound, I, don't think, I never think of it as noise. I always think hearing, hearing, sound, sound, sound. And it can be really hard, you know, especially if it's disturbing your sleep and all of that. So the first thing is that, you know, I don't think that trying to make it your object of meditation, if it's a persistent, enduring, um, disturbing, piercing kind of sound, that what you're trying to do is to, is to feel differently about it by meditating on it. And that's almost like trying to force something to happen with this really difficult situation. It feels to me as if what would be wise would be to try to solve it some other way, that the meditation will only go so far. Meditation isn't a be-all, end-all, answer, cure-all for everything, you know. So you might want to figure out what you want to do in terms of this. If it's really, you're losing sleep and it's really disturbing you, it's, it's, it's having an effect on your health. So don't you want to do something really more proactive about it? Although, if you want to meditate on it, then you hear it simply as sound. And also, not to just listen to the sound, but also to notice the reactions that you're having to it. And really pay attention to those reactions in terms of your physical body. Like, what's, you know, what's, what does it feel like to actually hear this sound? Where is it felt? Is it felt in your ears? Is it, is it felt in your brain? Is it felt in your eyes, in your belly, in your feet? Where do you feel it? To actually go into it in a in a microscopic way to understand the um, impact of that sound and also to understand the mind that's hearing the sound and what its qualities are. If, if it's a mind that's agitated or a mind that's still, a mind that's dark, a mind that's light, a mind that's wide, a mind that's narrow, a mind that's concentrated, that's not concentrated, what kind of mind is it? and to understand the aversion that's arising. So there, oh, there's a whole world that's coming up just from the object of sound hitting the ear, the, um, the, the, um, the sense object, 
I'm sorry, the sense object is hitting the, the, the organ and that's creating sound and then that's creating a, a reaction. So to actually be able to observe that whole chain reaction, that whole chain of events and understand that and then whatever stories are in the mind, right? Because the stories really can start popping, right? What would it be like to take a broomstick and start popping on the ceiling or doing something even more violent? And to watch that, watch those kinds of thoughts and ideas and how those feel in the body so that you're aware moment to moment to moment of what's happening, including the reactivity, not excluding the reactivity, but bringing that in and not trying to make it better or feel better, but actually knowing it in its raw state. But it sounds to me like you really need a practical solution too. So let's just um, dedicate the merits of our practice. When we sit together and contemplate the Dharma and contemplate our practice and our place in the Dharma and the, our way of practicing together. We create a field of goodness and merit that we share with others rather than holding the benefit to ourselves. We recognize it as uh, benefits that are uh, universal and in some ways we fall in love with humanity and all of life. We feel that love and we dedicate the merits of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Wishing that all beings be safe from harm happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with complete ease, free from suffering and completely free. May it be so. Thank you so much. Have a really good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.